Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, birding, and environmental education. If you have a fascination with the natural world, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is John Griffith, or better known as Griff. Griff is a natural and cultural resources interpreter for California State Parks and host of the Animal Planet show, Wild Jobs. Prior to that, Griff was a longtime crew supervisor in the California Conservation Corps, where he and his crew restored habitat throughout Northern California. Griff's love of nature and infectious personality make him a natural educator. He immerses himself in his projects and the parks that he supports, learning the ecology and history and also encouraging diversity in his programs. You have to check out some of his Facebook Live weekly videos from Humboldt Redwood State Park to see how charismatic and on point his videos are. Griff joined us today from location in some of the last remaining intact old growth redwood forest, so please forgive the occasional bit of wind noise. I promise it's barely noticeable. And note that while he works for California State Parks, in this episode he's off duty, not representing the state parks. In our wide ranging conversation today, we discussed what's so magical about the old growth redwoods of California. If you haven't seen these trees and habitat before, just think about Star Wars Return of the Jedi. The scenes from the forest moon indoor were filmed in that area. It's amazing. Our discussion of giant trees takes a surprising turn to prairies. Yes, there are actually very productive prairies in the redwoods. Griff tells us about a few, as well as an exciting elk encounter he had at one of them, and thankfully we can laugh about it now. And of course, we spend a lot of time talking about Griff's approach to creating engaging conservation content, including specific approaches that you and I can use. We get into some details about Griff's Animal Planet show, Wild Jobs, which is a lot of fun to watch and really highly recommended. And if all that's not enough, we also discuss Griff's recent appearance on The Kelly Clarkson Show. And we wrap up discussing the importance of treating our properties like habitat. And in typical Griff style, he makes this point in a unique and entertaining way. If you haven't seen or heard Griff before, I promise you that you'll walk away from this interview a fan. Be sure to check out his Facebook page and his YouTube channel. And of course, I have all those links in the show notes. So without further delay, Griff. All right, Griff, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Hello, everybody from the Redwoods. I wish everybody could see what I see right now because your office is actually like, it looks like there's a fallen Redwood right behind you and ferns and, you know, all sorts of great scenery right around you. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the remaining 5% of old growth redwood forest, coastal redwoods. So the remaining like 4.6% of old growth that's left. And I'm standing in the biggest intact old growth redwood forest in the world, Rockefeller Forest, which extends up Avenue of the Giants. And it's one big contiguous old growth redwood forest. And it's such a blessing to be here. I suspect a lot of my listeners have never had the opportunity to see an old growth redwood forest or even any redwood forest. So can you just describe a little bit about what it's like and what makes it so special? You know, you would think that since I'm a cultural and natural resource interpreter that I'd have a billion go-to answers. But, you know, it's, it's really weird, like, to describe something that you love so much to someone else, you, you know, you become super critical of yourself. Like you just can't do a good enough job. So it's like so hard for me to describe this place. And also because everyone has a different perspective and I hear a lot of them because of my job and where I live. So I just will, I'll just say like ecologically, 
this place has the most biomass of anywhere else on the planet and um, living in dead organic material way more than the Amazon, like eight times more than the Amazon. And most of that is in huge giant redwood trees. And so around me are trees from, you know, that are one year old all the way up to 2000 plus. And some of them are huge, have huge diameters, you know, up to 20 feet in the extreme big ones. And, and many of them are over 300 feet tall. And this like really filters out the light. And so the plants that exist um, along the, the forest floor here are all very, very good at photosynthesizing. And a lot of them are mosses and ferns and redwood sorrel and or sorrel and um, just incredibly beautiful. There is thick duff like leaves all over the ground and trees that fell 500, 600, 700 years ago in various states of decay with plants growing on top of them. It's just incredible. Yeah, I like to describe it to people like who've seen the Star Wars movies, the forest moon of Endor. I think it was actually yeah. filmed up in old growth redwood forest. Oh, yeah. That's sort of what it's like. I'm a couple miles from the speeder chase scene where the speeder <laughs> chase scene was filmed. Yeah, that's amazing. And you know, when people hear that those are actually real trees, that those things really exist, it's, yeah. it's just such an eye opener. Yeah. I heard that where the actual village site was, and I need to follow up on this because I just heard this. I heard that the original Endor was actually on private property, even though they filmed a lot of it on state parks property and that Endor has been logged. So oh. I'm going to look into that and see if that's true, because that would be an interesting conversation. Like Endor has been clear cut. Yeah. I'm going to follow up on that. If anybody else knows anything about that, like it'd be cool to hear from you, but I'll probably know the answer by the time this podcast comes out. Well, if you find out, let me know and I'll add something in or at least put it in the show notes. Okay, cool. Yeah, one thing that I actually had the opportunity to camp up in one of the state parks uh, in the Redwoods, it's Van Dam State Park. Oh, yeah. I don't think there's much, uh, I don't think that any of that's old growth. So it got me wondering, like, when does a Redwood forest transition from second growth to old growth? Like, is there an age or is it more about the habitat? Well, you know, it depends on who you ask. Because the answer has changed so many times. And one of the reasons why it's changed so many times is because we've, we're still understanding the forest. And a lot of people are like, we are? Yeah, well, we're, we just discovered a new type of flying squirrel here like three years ago. And we are just starting to understand the, the human-caused changes that have happened to redwoods. So, like, you know, there's a book called Before the Wilderness, which is about California, because before... Europeans invaded, colonized this area. Um, there really was no no wilderness. Humans managed, or they don't. Indigenous people didn't call it management, of course, but they they interacted with their relatives is how they would see it, and they used fire. And so there used to be a lot more frequent fires in old growth forest. So to me, if you have an old forest, but you have taken the fire return interval away, where it used to have fires set by people like every eight to 20 years, and now it hasn't burnt 150 years, is it still old growth? You know, it's, it, so to me, like a lot of the ways in California that we relate to forests and old growth forests, we have to consider the human history to it because um, old growth forests used to have a lot more characteristics by fire. So like hollowed out trees from fire, which takes several fires to make a goose pin tree and those kinds of things that happened because of the frequency of burns. And that's what we see as old growth forest. And then we say, well, old growth forest has never been manipulated by quote unquote man. And that's BS. It all has, it all has. And so the last 150 years, whatever we didn't cut down as American colonists descendants of 
we call that old growth, but it hasn't had the same relationship with humans that it used to have. So one definition is, sorry, this is like a long way to tell, answer this question, is that it's never been logged before. And I would say a pristine old growth forest is a forest that has ha never been logged, but has been treated, I guess you'd say, the way it was previous to European colonization of California. Well, I think it's, I mean, it's great that you go into the detail because everything has nuance. And, you know, the more I've learned about ecology and nature, I find out that there's never one answer to anything because mm -hmm. there's, there's a history, there's uh, something unique to the specific location. You know, so there's never one solution or one answer. So please, you know, go into depth <laughs> as we're talking today. Yeah. I would just say that the common accepted is old growth forest is that it's never been logged or heavily grazed. I would add that a functioning, awesome old growth forest is one that is still managed in with in, in, in indigenous life ways. You know, one thing that got me thinking, I actually heard an interview with you from, uh, oh, I forget where, but you mentioned that you really enjoy redwood prairies and yes. bringing up the fact that the indigenous people used to burn, you know, every eight to 20 years. I'm guessing that helped sustain the prairies. Oh, yeah. So is this something that current land stewards are continuing or are redwood prairies endangered because we aren't letting them burn grasslands in california are one of the most one of the most impacted ecosystems in the world we have lost the vast majority of our grasslands already i think i think it's the uh california grasslands association said it's like 80 percent of grasslands are gone and of the ones that are, exist only one percent are considered like still containing their native assemblages so that all needs to be double checked because it's been a while since I heard those statistics. But grasslands are, are gone and, and, and for many reasons. But one of the main reasons up here, coastal grasslands are gone is because of encroachment of woody plants and, and in particular Douglas fir. And it's not just taking out the grasslands. It's also taking out the oak woodlands. And this is a very, very productive, very productive ecosystem. People look at grasslands and don't think it's biodiverse. But like 40 percent of California's native plant diversity is in grasslands. And grasslands are not 40% of California. So it shows you how important they are. And in the coastal area, you can really see that when you come out of redwoods, redwoods aren't super biodiverse, like on a macro level. There's a lot of little things, but there's not a lot of different types of birds and plants in an old growth redwood forest. But as soon as you get into the ecotones, where it starts turning into a, a you know, mixed conifer and then an oak woodlands and then a grassland, there is tons of biodiversity and we are losing these very fast. And another crazy thing about like losing these prairies, why it's such terrible uh, management on our part is because the Doug firs drink a lot more water and we're having all this drought in this area and we're blaming, you know, different types of human caused water diversions, which is true. There's tons of those pot growers and PG&E, you know, water diversion out of Eel River, but also just us letting Doug firs spread across the landscape and in particular, these prairies and, and, and closing out these prairies has caused a major uptake in water. And um, that's not helping the drought and our endangered fish because salmon and steelhead are endangered in this watershed. And it's not helping at all. So we really need to reestablish our grasslands and have a burn regime on them because that's how the native people still maintain their grasslands. And so we really need to incorporate uh, their teachings. We need them to teach us how to take care of our grasslands. And that's happening. I'm super happy to report that that is happening. That's super cool. And by the time we publish this episode, another episode uh, that I recorded with a fellow, uh, Chris Helzer, he's known as the Prairie Ecologist, will oh, have cool. also been published. And yeah, we get a little bit more into even 
you know, out on the plains, fire is a integral part of maintaining prairies to withhold mm-hmm. that encroachment from the woody plants. Yeah. So I really want, I and mean, thank you for asking me that question. And I hope a lot of people t- tune into his interview because prairies are awesome. They're incredible. They're biodiverse. They sequester lots of carbon. They give a lot of animals that you won't see in other places on the landscape, but you will see in grasslands, especially oak woodlands, savannas, just incredible wildlife. A lot of those things are endemic to California, meaning they only grow in California. So any support we can get for prairies, let's do it because it's, it's a worthy cause. I have to say, I didn't think we were going to divert into talking about prairies with you know, <laughs> giant redwoods all around you. Right. Uh, but where would someone, if they're lucky enough to be in California, go to find a, a nice redwood prairie these days? Are there any that are open to the public? Oh, yeah. There's several in California state and national parks. Probably the most epic one is Bald Hills area where fire ecologists have been reintroducing fire for years and years and years, decades and taking out, cutting out Doug first. And there's a really cool program between California State Parks and, say, the Redwood League to um, reestablish uh, healthy forests and expedite old growth conditions around the oak woodlands and grasslands. And then in the oak woodlands and grasslands, California Conservation Corps has been, you know, partnering with Redwood National Parks for years to remove Doug fir and um, reintroduce fire. So it's really exciting up there. We have a bunch of small ones in the southern parks, so like in Humboldt Redwood State Park. You go down Matoll Road, which goes through the Rockefeller Forest, which is the most epic road probably in, on the planet, because you're it's like barely a it's like a one and a half lane road that takes you through an old growth forest, winding, wrapping around huge massive trees, and then you come out and you look in the hills around, and there's prairies up there, and you can take various trails up to the prairies, and then you have like an epic view, and plus you see lots of flowers, and birds, and you know acorn woodpeckers, like really cool birds that run around in packs and it gangs and stuff. And so it's really cool to go check them out. So can you tell me about what sort of wildlife encounters you have in the Redwoods or at the Redwood Prairies that stand out to you? I'm sure that with as much time as you spent outdoors in your career, that there've been some very interesting ones. And probably 60% of them involve elk, Roosevelt elk. And um, some in the Sintion wilderness, which has some great prairies, by the way. Um, coastal prairies, and some in Prairie Creek Redwood State Park. So in my 20s, I was on a trail crew for Redwood State National Parks, all up and down the North Coast District. And I lived in, on the border of Elk Prairie, which is this very, very epic prairie that almost everybody sees when you come up here because you drive down Newton B. Drury Drive, which is one a very epic drive up north. And you go through this huge prairie and there's very often herds of elk out there. And elk were almost, we have two types of elk in California and they're almost completely wiped out. They got to very small populations. And then now we've been reintroducing them into prairies up and down California and they're really coming back. So it's really cool. It's a great rewilding story. But a lot of times people don't understand that, you know, there's certain times of year you just don't want to mess with elk and that's when they have babies and that's when they're in rut. And one day, you know, my house sat right on the side of Elk Prairie. And one day I saw this teenager jump, park his car, jump the fence and run out to a field. And I saw this huge bull elk who I had been watching for a long time because he had been beating everybody else up because that's how it happens in the elk world. He was like the king. I named him after one of my favorite historical characters, Tecumseh. And I would give everybody a Tecumseh update what this bull elk was doing. And I was... Young, I was really young at the time, and so I did stupid things like I bugled back at him and 
and got his attention sometimes and just, you know, dumb stuff like that. But not so dumb as this teenager who's running out in the field towards Tecumseh. And so Tecumseh like bugled and started after him. And I was like, oh no. So I ran without thinking to intercept. And so as I'm running to intercept, he turns around, sees me, starts coming towards me. And I ran all the way to my house. And he was right behind me when I walked through, when I busted through my door and his antlers wouldn't let him inside. And then he did this really odd thing where he like, how should I say this? It's inappropriate. He like, I could see his penis go back and forth really fast. And he like anointed my porch with a huge puddle of whatever that was. And, um, and I was like, Oh gross. And so I went out the back door and I went and told the uh, interpretive ranger. And next thing I know, he was like, yeah, I saw the whole thing. And so next thing you know, he starts diverting his walk of people to come look at what happened to my porch. And it was just ridiculous and funny and um, a good lesson for everybody not to cross the fence and go into the the uh, field with Tecumseh. And you know what? Tecumseh lost a fight two weeks later as I got popped out. And I didn't see him again for a long time. And then during the winter, I saw him without his antlers. And I could tell it was him because his eye was missing. And he just looked like a, a dying version of his once glorious self. It's kind of a sad story, but... There's that one. And then another time I had a California conservation crew and I were, were trapped between two six pack trucks, big trucks, as these two bulls fought around us. And there was a herd of elk and it was like so epic. And a lot of these core members were from urban areas. And so they're like, this is like National Geographic. This is like, you know, Animal Planet. And I'm like, and I'm just like hoping that none of us got killed, but it was a really cool experience too. So elk has been a big, a big part of my life as far as wildlife experiences, because I've always been in the coast and coastal prairies and that's where they hang out. Well, that's just a crazy visual seeing you running, getting through your door. And like, it sounds like you didn't even get a chance to shut the door. It's just because his antlers were so broad that he couldn't get in. He could not get in. Yeah. And I was like, thank God. (laughs) If he had known to turn his head to the side, he may have been able to to fit through. He was so pissed at me. It was weird because like, I, I, we usually don't have a lot of problems with running elk charging at people it's usually the females that have babies that cause most of the problem and i've had tons of run-ins with them too but i won't tell all the elk stories today but usually you know even when they're in rut they're you know i, I haven't had that much problem with the bull elks you know i've gotten really close not on purpose but you know got really close to them and their herds and they never bothered me but i think it might have been because i had been antagonizing this particular one for so long maybe i don't know <laughs> yeah it all goes back to you bugling back to it i think <laughs> yeah maybe So there's a whole bunch of things I want to talk to you about today, and maybe backing up a little bit, I first learned about you, uh, I don't don't recall for sure if it was from your Facebook Lives at Humboldt Redwood State Park, and yeah, so I, I looked into you because I could tell that you were really great at communicating to the public through these Facebook Live videos, and uh, and I said, well, you work for state parks, so I'm curious what a typical week in your day job is like. Yeah. So I'm going to answer that, but I'm going to tell everybody I'm off work today and I am not representing state park in any way, shape or form, but I can talk about the job from a career aspect because it's very similar to what I've been doing all my life as a uh, interpreter, a cultural natural resource interpreter. And that's my title with state parks. And that's been my title before in various capacities for different organizations. So, you know, COVID year has really changed things. And so the boss I'm working for, Martin Robbins, he has really, really good intuitions about interpretation and, and, and how, to, how to engage people so they become conservationists or at least appreciators of the park. And so he had to start doing Facebook Lives. And, you know, I've been doing Facebook Lives for years already, 
you know, I had a, a viral, a dance video of me go viral. And um, I didn't know anything about social media at that point or the power of it. This is like 2012, 13. And so when I saw that people like watching me dance, that's another story, but I was like, well, I don't want to be the fat cowboy dancer. I want to be the conservationist who has a conservation message. So I use the dancing platform to start making conservation videos and it caught a lot of notice. And that's one of the amazing things about being alive today is if I was trying to do this without social media, if I was trying to help people understand and get curious about nature, try to get them to become informed and empathetic and take compassionate action for wildlife to reach as many people as I'm reaching, I'd have to tour the country constantly, but because of social media, I'm able to get these messages out sooner and quicker into a vast, huge audience. And I feel really grateful about that. So I, I was a Luddite and did not like technology. And that is changing rapidly today. And so the Facebook lives that I've done for my personal pages or for the CCC or for different organizations and state parks have reached millions of people. And a lot of them have gotten back to me and said stuff like, because of your video, I planted native plants or because of your video, I stopped feeding opossums or I built a catio for my cat or and so i start thinking about that in terms of every time someone gets back to me with something like that i think about it in terms of saved wildlife or you know or adding more insects to the the terrestrial plankton that they are you know and feeding birds and stuff and insects are like terrestrial plankton and every time i can get people to plant native plants or you know support compassionate actions for wildlife it's it's it makes me feel so good and so i get to feel good a lot thanks to social media the power of social media. I you showed up somehow on my backyard wildlife Facebook group at one point, and I don't know if you found us or or somebody invited you or what exactly happened. And just to demonstrate how this sort of the tentacles of social media work, somebody somebody else who was on that group then shared one of your videos to the open space authority that's in my local area, and nice. I I saw that. And on Facebook. And I saw that there were like 14 additional shares of that one video. So um, it just shows the, as you said, the power of, of social media to reach people. Yeah. And also like understanding that the world has changed in lots of ways and is changing rapidly um, as we speak. And so like conservation messages and messaging also has to change. And I feel like me and my team, in state parks and as well as some friends that aren't in state parks that are, you know, delivering conservation messages have stepped up to this new way of delivering conservation messages where they're not doom and gloom, where there's like something you can do and where the messages are also shorter. So they're like, and more engaging. Everybody who's under 35 has pretty much grown up watching lots and lots of videos. And so the days of the wooden sage on the stage, you know, with the power of the government or you know national wildlife federation or national geographic behind him or her those days are over people aren't really interested in that anymore you know our attention spans are too short so you got to like dance or be crazy or something to get people to stick around long enough to learn how they can help wildlife and that's just the reality of, of today so being hopeful in that assuming that things will start to get back to pre-covid norms do do you expect to have sort of a different ratio of in-person versus virtual engagement? I'm not quite sure what the what the proper term would be for that, but I'm, I'm guessing some of this change is going to stick. Yes, we are not going to lose. Some people think that we're going to lose our online audience. We are not because the people that we reached by and large with our online presence was people who wouldn't be able to make it here anyways, you know, for whatever reason. 
you know, usually it's financial. So we've got an audience that wishes they could come and this is the next best thing. And, you know, a lot of this, this place is so incredibly cathedral like that even through video camera, you can get, you can sense how it feels to be here. And also we're already seeing way more visitors to our park, um, all these parks than we did pre COVID people can't wait to go outside. And so we're already seeing a lot more people in the parks up here, you know, state, national, county, city parks. And so I think that there's just one of the blessings of COVID was there's an uptick in interest of the outdoors. And I'm certain that our online audience is going to continue to grow. And I think that visitation to parks is going to continue to grow. So I do want to ask you about those Facebook Live videos, because what really struck me was how natural and simultaneously well-prepared they come across like as a viewer. And I know a lot of it's your personality. You're just very good at this. But I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about how you prepare for those videos. I'd like to understand what it takes to deliver such a clean and engaging message like that. You know, there are some recipes and formulas that I can share that would be helpful. But for me, a lot of it is that I'm a zealot. I've been interested in wildlife conservation since my grandmother introduced me to a toad in the middle of her mobile home park when I was three or four years old. And I have dedicated my life to wildlife conservation. And I am so concerned about biodiversity loss. And I have empathy for all animals, uh, all wild animals mainly, and wildlife. And, and I want to protect habitat. And so I'm willing to do whatever I need to do to present a message to people that's accessible. And I want them to look at me and go, I'm just as smart, if not smarter than this guy. So I could be a nature lover and a wildlife conservationist too. Like, I don't want anything about me to get in the way of people becoming curious about nature, becoming informed and empathetic and taking compassionate action. And so I give people what they want and people want to be edutained. You know, the, the era of preachiness is over. I don't want to depress people. When, when someone depresses, you don't come back. If you have a friend that every time you go to the house and they're like, oh, and then this terrible thing happened, you're concerned for a while. But after, after 10 of those visits, you're like, I got to protect myself from this negative ass friend. Excuse my language. <laughs> but, you, you know, so like, I don't want to do that to people. There is good things happening. There are hopeful things happening. And there are things you can do. You don't have to feel powerless. You don't have to give up. There are some really powerful, very, very easy and entertaining things you can do to help nature. And that's what I'm focusing on. I want people to see me as very accessible, regular kind of person that can come over to my house, have a beer, tea with, and, and hear how they can help save wildlife. So I think the first thing that someone needs to do, if they're, and I think everybody sh should want to do Facebook Lives about nature, I think all oh, you should. And so, because we need everybody. And, and the more, the better, and the more repetition, the better. But one of the things is to do is like, talk about what you're passionate about and then talk about what's either what you're passionate about or what's really relevant to the time. I call it trend jacking. So some of my most popular videos were because it was a, I, I talked about mountain lions when that guy, uh, Kyle birds, that's who I got to talk to for a long time. is really cool. When he got chased away from that mother mountain lion and that video got way over 500,000 views. And then I talked about fire ecology when California was on fire. So that's called trend jacking. So one thing that people, you, you got to do is like, when people are interested in a subject, that's a great time to talk about it. So when people are interested in a wildlife subject, so maybe there's a condor story, or maybe there's a local native plant story or whatever, you should jump on that and join that momentum 
and, and make sure that it really gets out there and sinks in with people. That's one. Um, also, like, you know, talking about what you're passionate about. Don't talk about something just because it's cool. Make sure that you love it. And if you don't love it, then learn more about it. Chances are, once you learn more about it, you'll start to love it. And that's kind of how it works. You know, like, you know, when you sit, if you've ever sat on a jury before and you hear this guy did some terrible thing, he beat someone up and you're like, he's a bad guy. I can't wait to see him go to jail. And then you hear his story about how he's trying to get his daughter some shoes so that she could go to school and blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden, he doesn't seem like such a bad guy anymore. He just seems like a desperate person trying to survive and you feel empathy towards him. And that's how it is in nature. Like, if you really want to speak for something, you should get to know it and become informed. And then, and then you'll get familiar and you'll become empathetic. And then you need to think about what compassionate action can you do to stoke this, whatever you're trying to protect. So, yeah, I think it has to come from care and from passion. And my own journey has been that, yes, the more I learn about something, then the more that that care and passion grows as well. So it becomes sort of a cyclical process. Mm -hmm. Do you actually practice your videos first or do you just like you have your idea and you go out there and you wing it? A little both. And I just want to say before I, I before I totally answer that question, you know, getting your Myers-Briggs personality type done and looking at what your personality type is and then speaking from there, you know, it's generalization, but it's pretty accurate. My, if you look up ENFP, the campaigner, like that's me. They, you could just write John Griffith on it and just Griff and, and you would know who I am. I, I would like to think I'm more unique, but they pegged me in that like super broad personality uh, description. But I feel like there's a lot of people who don't resonate with my style. And so like, I want people to know that even if you're not super animated and passionate, you still have a place in this because there's a lot of people who want the facts and figures and statistics and want it like purely scientific. You should come and lean into that and be ready with that too. So I, I just want to, you know, make sure that everybody feels welcome to speak out for nature because there's, there's tons of personality types and different things resonate with them. So now back to your question. Well, usually what happens is I've always, I've, I've been a naturalist for a long, long time. So I have a lot of stuff that I've just learned along the way that um, and I worked with 18 to 25 year olds for almost 20 years. And um, almost none of them were really interested in nature, even though they signed up to do ecological restoration and firefighting. Most of the, most of the young people in the CCC, California Conservation Corps, are people who are just looking to get out of their hometowns for whatever reason. Sometimes it's because they're from distressed communities. Sometimes it's because they just want to get away from their parents and have some independence and they can get tons of scholarships and they get paid and they get a place to live in the CCC far away from home. And they would come out with me and I would find out what I, I, I you know, after almost 20 years of doing this, I knew what I found out what interests people who don't have a background in ecology. And so I know I have a long list of things that people who are not normally interested in nature would actually become interested in and how to present it. Cause I can, I, you know, working with these core members for years and years, how to motivate them to want to plant trees or motivate them to want to do salmon habitat restoration or motivate them. Even the most difficult thing to motivate them with was like removing invasive plants, like pulling weeds, like on the beach or in the rain and, you know, hard work, low pay, miserable conditions is the CCC slogan. And it's real. <laughs> so I'd have to motivate them. And so it was the best training in the whole world was working with 18 to 25 year olds who a lot of times weren't comfortable with where they're at and me trying to make them comfortable and help them feel empowered and realize that the work they were doing was so incredibly important. And they trained me to be good at it. So, so I have a lot of stuff already in my head. 
And I know what people are going to trip out on. And, and like people, like there's some ecological subjects that people just get really curious about and they want to, they want to hear about. And those are usually ones that have multiple connections where the story keeps continuing, like pollination ecology or seed dispersal or something like that, where it's not a standalone. It's something that's connected to this and then connected to this and connected to this. And a lot of people, a lot of the old ways of teaching ecology was like survival of fittest. And that really grabs people still on TV, you know, survival of the fittest. And here comes this line. Oh my God. But I like to teach survival of the most cooperative because it's more common than survival of the fittest, I believe. And it's more interesting, especially now that we're having the technology to unveil things like mycorrhizal connections with plants, which is just unbelievable. And I like to talk about those things because it's almost like Yes, this is nature. This is something you thought you knew, but you saw a green blur and you have no idea if this is stranger than fiction. And so come out here and let me show you. And and when I do, people are like, whoa, and it plants the seeds of curiosity. And then they teach themselves and they don't need me anymore. So that list that you've assembled over the years is probably worth its weight in gold. Like you should <laughs> you should go publish it. <laughs> you should write a book. I've had friends have added to it too. Yeah. Other interpreters have added to it and vetted it with me. Yeah. So I Maybe I will polish that up and put that out so other environmental educators can. It's a good idea. Yeah, that's something that seems to me that one of the hardest things is to find people who maybe aren't interested in nature and figure out what is the hook to yeah. to help at least get them on the ladder, get them on the ladder yeah. so they can start climbing. I, I guess in the case of California Conservation Corps, they were a bit of a captive audience. Yes. Uh, so, so maybe that was a little bit helpful in making that happen. A lot that helpful. <laughs> you you actually started very young at the California Conservation Corps. Maybe give a little bit of background what that is, how it works, how you got there yourself. Well, I got there because I was a really angry and rebellious teenager who dropped out of high school in 10th grade, tried to go back for my junior year, just didn't work. So I was too far behind in credits and stuff. And I had a drug problem. Um, my dad was a, a very, very conservative cop and very religious totally different personality type than me too and he his idea of security was having these guidebooks and following rules and i'm the complete opposite you know, i'm an enfp like i mentioned before i don't like rules unless you can tell me why and and then and then i can understand why they're and my, that wasn't my dad's flavor he was like because it's my house and you have to and so like that made me rebellious and being a, a young person uh, and really kind of naive in some ways, my way of liberating myself was to do the opposite of what he wanted me to do, which was terrible plan. And so I, uh, ended up running away from home, being a drug addict, dropping out of high school, having some brushes with the law. And one day a friend of mine said, you know, you have this, you know, you have this really strong interest in nature and history and stuff and it. You just need to get out of the city. I was in the Bay area at the time. And so I, He's like, I'm going to join the California Conservation Corps. You should come with me. And I did. And I got in there and the CCC was pretty hardcore back then. It was paramilitary. So they had a boot camp and they had some very streetwise young supervisors who were like, you're a tweaker and you're going to NA if you want to stay in the CCC. And so I did. And I got off drugs and I started planting trees and I loved, I loved it. I loved building trails. I loved planting trees. I loved doing habitat restoration. I loved being in the woods all the time. I loved that we camped. I wore po terrible poison oak rashes almost the whole entire time, and I still loved it. So because of my experience with the CCC, you know, after that, I went to college, and it took me like 
10 years to graduate because I had these really cool seasonal jobs with the Forest Service or the Wildlife Conservation Society or the Nature Conservancy, where I was doing really, really cool stuff because of my experience I got in the CCC. So after like 13 years of being a seasonal, I'm doing everything from salmon in the classroom to bird surveys, to fish surveys, to firefighting, to trail building, to agriculture, to even working on a fishing boat one summer. I came back to the CCC as a supervisor because I wanted to give back to what I, what I had, but also I just wanted to be part of that magic of people healing themselves while they're healing the earth and who better than the youth. Right. And so a lot of the stuff, the California conservation Corps does is restoration, ecological restoration. So we're healing these degraded habitats with a lot of people who need a lot of healing themselves. Like I was when I was 18. And so I love that combination. I love core programs. They work. And they're beautiful. They work for most people. And they're beautiful. And it was very, very healing for me. And started me on, that's why I'm here today. I, I give the CCC credit for saving my life. That's amazing. Is it still going strong today? Is it still properly funded and, and continuing on? You know, now the California Conservation Corps used to be state funded and it no longer is. And so a lot of the staff members are constantly chasing funding, which is just too bad. Because a lot of these people who are chasing funding the whole entire time should be interacting with core members more because they're brilliant people and they got promoted because they were good with core members. And now they're just chasing funding, which is really too bad, but it's the, it's the reality. It's not the CCC's fault. It's something they have to do. But I would like to see 100% state funding for the CCC so they could focus on the youth. And, you know, already it's a miracle they do as good as they do focusing on the youth. And a lot of that's because they have partners that kind of come in and help. So that's keeping the youth development aspect going. But it could be much stronger if they all didn't have to chase money all the time, which is really unfortunate. But it is still going strong, and it's still uh, providing a wonderful service in a million different ways, including around our wildfires in California. Well, as always, I'll make sure to link to it through the show notes as well so people can find it. And uh, I will see if there's any like donation buttons or anything like that I can link to directly as well so that uh, anyone listening, if they so choose, they could seek that out. Yes, there's a lot of core programs, like 140 in the United States. And so there might be one near you, a county one or a city one that probably use your donation even more than the California Conservation Corps. So look local and see if you got any local core programs. C-O-R-P-S. Great idea. Jumping ahead a little bit, in more recent news, you were just on the Kelly Clarkson show for Earth Day. I was. That was a trip. How did that come to be? She saw my videos and was like, he's trippy. <laughs> and so the producers reached out to me. And it, it, we've been talking since October and like things have come up and blah, blah, blah. So they said, well, how about Earth Day? And I was like, great, because I would love to talk about Earth Day resolutions, because that's how I treat Earth Day. Was, it's like New Year's Eve where you have New Year's resolutions, but I want people to, on Earth Day to have like, you know, conservation resolutions. So I was like, I could talk about Earth Day resolutions. Yeah, I'm coming. And so I went on there, and I, Michael, I was so sick that week. And so the night before I went on, I couldn't hear. I had such a bad ear infection in both ears. I could not hear. I'm sweating. My head is pounding. And I'm like, wow, I'm, I finally have an opportunity to talk to a whole bunch of people about Earth Day resolutions. And I'm going to be so sick. They're going to think that I'm a zombie. And the next day I woke up, I felt a tiny bit better. But as soon as my adrenaline kicked in and stuff like that, my mother couldn't even tell that I was sick. So I pulled it, <laughs> I pulled it off with adrenaline and excitement and you know, I was just so happy that it worked out the way it did because all the way going up to where I saw Kelly, I was just like, oh, I can't hear anybody and I feel sick. And luckily she spoke loud and 
and it worked out really well. That's great. And I hope that there's long lasting impact from that. We were chatting a little bit before we started recording about that. And uh, I know she said that she would like to have you back on again. So I'm really hoping that she actually follows through on that and that you get the opportunity to, to become a recurring guest. You know, and it's so much fun too. Like I love making videos and I love teaching people and I love talking about, you know, my passion and and wildlife conservation and I want to make it fun for people. And so like, I, I feel really grateful whenever I have an opportunity to do something like that. And so I try to look for those opportunities as much as possible. But when a big one like that just comes at you, that made me feel truly blessed. Well, speaking of big opportunities and kind of big time media, you hosted a show called wild jobs on animal planet. Yeah. So you tell me about what that show's theme was. So wild jobs was kind of like dirty jobs um, that had micro, I love micro. It was like that, but just focused on animal jobs. And it was really like, and each scene was really short, like 10, 10 minutes tops. And they found me, um, High Noon Entertainment found me because of my YouTube channel. I used to be a lot more active on YouTube. I just started getting active on YouTube again, like a month ago. So, you know, I, I had this huge following and I just kind of like, eh, I don't want to do YouTube anymore. And I, and I ditched it and I should have never done that. But anyways, they saw me on YouTube and they said, they called me up and they're like, hey, have you, anybody talked to you about a show? And I was like, yeah, people have been calling me and talking about shows and they either want me to dance or they want to put camera on me at work, which um, the CCC is dramatic enough already. They don't need cameras up. You know, the, a lot of the youth we're dealing with in there, like the last thing they need, need is an Academy Award because <laughs> they're already dramatic enough, you know, because a lot of them are dealing with like they just got out of the city and now they're in the rain planting trees on top of a mountain. You know, it's already dramatic and we don't want to make it any worse for them. So I told him, I was like, I was like, well, if you're going to, if you want to follow me around at work, it's not happening. So sorry. And they're like, no. And I was like, okay, if you want me to dance or whatever, like I'll dance, but that's not my thing. Cause that's, you know, that's how I got a platform is to dancing, not through conservation. They're like, no, we like your conservation videos and we would like you to think about some of these show ideas and which one resonates with you. And they all resonated with me, but Wild Jobs was the one that took. And hopefully now that I can retire, this was before I could actually retire, but now that I can retire, I'm hoping that I get another opportunity like that again, um, because uh, Wild Jobs was a 10 episode online show that was super fun to do. And I would love to do that again, but I'd love to do it full time. And so kind of hoping I get a call now that COVID's over. I love what I'm doing right now, but there's something, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I've never been wealthy. My family wasn't wealthy. I've never been wealthy. I've never had money to travel. So anytime that I've ever traveled, it's because of work. So I got to go to Russia for six weeks, but that was because I was working and I've got to go to Mexico because it was working, you know? So it's like, I loved the traveling opportunity that I got doing a show and then got to go to these heroes, these people who like are awesome, who dedicated their life, you know, basically to a lot of them took a vow of poverty so that they could help wildlife. I mean, these are like the most incredible, awesome people. And I got to tell their story and that made me feel so honored. So not only did I get to go to these beautiful places, but I got to give, put the spotlight on people who are just exquisite, compassionate individuals, you know, like the folks at Ojai Raptor Center and like a lot of the wildlife care centers that I went to and the Gibbon Conservation Center and um, Ellie who rescued horses that were on their way to be turned into horse sushi and how she trained the young ones and got them adopted. Just all these people who 
are so compassionate and it just felt like a blessing. I would love to do that again. So all these shows, I think they're still available online to view. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, they're on animalplanet.com, but I would recommend going to Facebook because on, if you go to Facebook, it's it, wild jobs is like two or three years old. It's still on the front page, which is beautiful. So it's, it's on the front page. And so right underneath cracky, the Irwin's on the left-hand side, you can click on wild jobs and you can watch all 10 episodes and they're short and they're fun and they're weird. And, if I ever had a chance to do it again, I have so much more video experience. So I would love to do it again, but to be more myself, like I really was in pinch me mode the whole entire time I was doing those episodes. So I like, wasn't sure. And I, and I, and I've never really watched TV. I stopped watching TV when I was 14. So I didn't even know like what a TV host was supposed to do. I'd never seen dirty jobs at that point. Now that I've done all these Facebook lives, I feel like I know better how I just, Basically, it's just about relaxing and being myself more. And that's good advice for anybody who wants to um, do videos with a message. It's just to relax and be yourself and, and, and don't worry about being polished. It's okay to mess up. And knowing that now, I feel like I could really take that show much further and make it 10 times more helpful and edutaining for people. So hopefully I'll get the opportunity. We'll see. Yeah, I hope so, for sure. And, you know, you said there's episodes are fairly short, but if you were going to recommend one to start with, is there one that you would recommend? I like the one that I did with Phoenix Herpetological Society, just because that was one of the last ones we filmed. And so I was feeling I was being more myself in that one and just goofy and dorkish and weird and awkward and having fun. And uh, I got to, they, there was just some really science, really cool science involved like this. They put a prosthetic tail on an alligator to help him walk better. that was fascinating. And they do a lot of like rehabilitation with individual reptiles, which was totally, totally cool. And plus they were just really cool people. They were just fun to be around for a day. And then animal tracks, which I think is episode one animal planet didn't share the first two episodes as much as I shared the other ones, which was too bad because I think episode one and two are are also really fun. Um, Episode one was animal tracks where, you know, when, like a lot of times people get rich and they're like, I want a Jaguar and a Python and a monkey as roommates. And then they get them all. And they're like, Oh no, no big mistake. Oh my gosh. Or, you know, maybe they get raided by the police or whatever. And so these animals get confiscated and there's no place to take them. So they take them to these sanctuaries and animal tracks is one of those sanctuaries that takes care of like confiscated animals or, or animals that people got because they thought it was cool. And then realized that, you know, monkeys poop all over the place. So, um, that was a really cool experience and really fun. And the um, woman who runs it is a joy to be around. And you'll see, she's just fun. So it's Animal Tracks, episode one, I believe. Great. Some good starting points for that. So we are nearing the end of our time. So I, I did want to ask, though, when you and I chatted a couple of weeks ago, one thing that really came across, and it's come across in your videos as well, is how passionate you are about treating personal areas as habitat. And mm-hmm. you, you even pointed me at some books uh, to, to read. So can you tell me more about how this vision of your own personal spaces as habitat has come to be for you? You know, this is there's like the deep, big answer, and there's the simple answer. I feel like I'll start with the big, deep answer. And if it gets too weird, you can just edit it out. I feel like we're at a point in our evolution. We've been evolving really fast. I know it doesn't seem like that because we all have said it's just short lifetimes. But, you know, 120 years ago, right where I'm standing, people were being raped, murdered, and sold. And because of the color of their skin. And that would never happen today. 
120 years seems like a long time ago, but it's two old ladies ago. Not, not even really old ladies. Okay. So from that period of time to where we're at now, there's been a lot of evolution taking place. And I think that the same spirit that made colonists evil towards indigenous people was the same spirit to why they exploited and overexploited the resources here, including the redwoods, salmon, buffalo, everything, you know, in the West. And we as a culture are slowly evolving away from that very dark and evil and greedy place. And we've had this conquer nature thing and we always want to, and then, so we've, we've like conquered nature, put our houses there and then imported this other ecosystem from Asia or Europe or Africa and are these ornamental plants and planted them. And these plants don't have relationships with the insects of this area. So they're basically, they, they might as well be plastic because they're not, Insects haven't evolved with them. And people always think that insects eat plants, period. 95% of our insects, our insect herbivores, only eat a few types of plants that they evolved with. If you don't have those plants, you don't have those insects. If you don't have those insects, you don't have songbirds. Like I said earlier, insects are the plankton of the land. The other thing is we always feel like we have to go someplace to get into nature now. Let's go to nature. Oh, I don't live in nature. I live in the city. And I think that humans, we are nature observing itself. And we need to recognize that we can bring native ecosystems into our yards, onto our porch, into our places of worship, into our workplaces. And it's really easy. And it starts with like native plants and a few other really simple practices that could take, you know, an hour long webinar to become really good at and to understand. So that's what I would love people to do is to start planting native plants so they can see the, the moss and butterflies that lay their eggs so your kids and you can start seeing nature happen. Even in the middle of L.A., in your apartment building, if you plant some native plants in pots on your porch, you're going to see something, especially if they're hummingbird plants. So that's what I want people to do. I want people to reconnect, you know, realize that we're not plastic humans. We're fire apes. We, we are still animals. We still need nature. And we need to see, kind of like borrow from some of the indigenous teachers that we have that I work with right now who tell me, you know, like, we don't manage nature. We have a relationship with it. And so I think that we can also, you know, descendants of colonists, we can also start having a relationship with nature, the native nature here. And it starts just by including them into our landscapes, native plants. And that will bring the insects, that will bring the birds. And then when things are migrating across, you know, huge metropolises, They'll be able to land and find the berries that they evolved with that fuel them on their trips. The butterflies too, like monarchs being a great example, you know, take some generations to go up and down their migration corridor. They need milkweed here and there. They need native plants here and there that are blooming at the appropriate times. And that's what I want people to get into. I want people to start seeing themselves as urban naturalists. And even with just a balcony, you can create some habitat. I hear you. And there's so many things I would like to say, because this is an area that I'm really passionate about as well. And I've been brainstorming some ideas as to how to you know, spread the word to more people. But the one thing I will say is when COVID hit, like a lot of people, I started paying a lot more attention to my property and to my yard. And I would take breaks and go out and look. And it turned into sort of a daily practice. And it did not take long at all for me to realize that my native plants was where all the action was. And yeah. the camellias and the roses and, you know, the citrus, there really wasn't much going on there. Like, you know, maybe you no. know, maybe when the citrus was blooming, it would attract a few pollinators. But it, it just, just was so eye-opening. And despite having heard this message many times from people, it really took me experiencing it to see that 
how important it was to treat our yards better. Yeah. And you know, the other thing that I then realized, he's like, I haven't used pesticide in a long time. And I started mm-hmm. noticing all these aphid outbreaks I'd never paid attention to before. And within a matter of a couple of days, the lace wings would come in and they would plant their eggs right next to the aphids. And then a few days later, mm-hmm. those eggs were gone and so were the aphids. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> the, the, the natural systems were starting to work again. Yeah. And you know, it's like, we got to stop. One of the things that I think we, part of this whole evolution thing from like horrible, murderous Americans that are want to dominate nature and people, uh, part of the evolution is to start looking at plants differently. Like plants are more than just about looks. They're also about uh, what they can do. So when, when we buy plants, we should buy them for what they can do as, as well as aesthetics. But what can they do and what are they going to attract? Because native plants going to attract a bunch of beautiful butterflies. And no one's going to be mad at you if you have too many butterflies in your yard. Like no one's, you're not going to meet anybody on Tinder and they're going to come over your house and they're gonna be like, oh, I thought we were a perfect match, but you have way too many butterflies in your yard. So this is not going to work out. Like that's never going to happen. And then people, I've had people go, well, I got to use the poisons because I get bite marks on my leaves. I, I live and work in the most beautiful place on the planet. And you know what? We don't spray any of the plants. All of our plants have bite marks, but you never heard anybody come back from the redwoods and say, Oh, the redwoods are so beautiful. Were it not for all the bite marks on the plants, you never heard anybody go, Oh, Yellowstone was great. Except for there were so many bug bites on the plants. Like no one ever says that So people. If you're looking at your um, plants close enough to see bite marks, then follow it. And find the caterpillar that's doing it, take a picture of them, upload it on iNaturalist, and that thing that left a bite mark is probably going to turn into a beautiful butterfly, and you really don't want to kill it. Again, so many places I want to go with this, and I, I want to be respectful of your time and not drag it on, but you know, just looking at the backyard, the interesting things you see that are bite marks, like leaf mining insects are just amazing, mm-hmm. the, the ecology of what's going on there, or like a leaf cutter bee, those perfect little half circles mm-hmm. that they cut out of, of the leaves. I find that beautiful just in itself. Yeah. And it's a story. And if you learn about it, like all of a sudden you become like, I'm a, this is what I do for a living. <laughs> I mean, I do, and when I, when I take people walks, I do point out the bite marks and talk about them. But it's like, you could do that in your own yard or on your own porch or balcony. You could say, see this bite mark right here? Or see how all the hairs in this leaf were removed? Well, there's this bee that came out and it took off all the hairs in this leaf and lined its little nest with it and then and then got some pollen from these other flowers in my yard, made a little pollen bag for you know and put it by this egg and closed it up and this egg is going to hatch into a larva and the next summer I'm going to have another bee, um, another native bee or whatever. Like if you learn about what's going on in your yard, you could now like entertain guests. By showing them, you know, and like break out some microscopes or uh, magnifying glasses and show them these cool things and tell them the stories. And then now all of a sudden in your yard, it's being a bunch of plastic plants that no one really notices because your yard looks just like everybody else's. But now you have all these stories in your yard. Your, your yard has soul. And that's what native plants can bring it. Absolutely. So to steer this towards wrapping up, I do want to find out is I know you have a whole bunch of, of knowledge and resources that you've been thinking of as we've been talking today. So do you have any resources, books or documentaries or anything that really stand out as important or influential to you right now that you'd recommend to others? By far, Doug Ptolemy's work. By far, by far, Doug Ptolemy's work. So um, if you're on the East Coast, you can get nature's uh, Bringing Nature Home. I mean, if you're on the West Coast, you can get Bringing Nature Home. But his newer book, Nature's Best Hope, is a must read or must listen to. 
It is wonderful. It's so helpful. He gives you so many tools to make the world a better place for wildlife and also just to make your life more interesting. Nature's Best Hope by Doug Ptolemy. I, he just came out with another book. I think it's gone on sale today. A matter of fact, about oak trees, which is my next book I'm going to read because I love his work. So Doug Ptolemy, and he's got a bunch of YouTube videos. Doug Ptolemy, Doug Ptolemy, Doug Ptolemy. Nature's Best Hope. That would be my first. That's where I send everybody. Start there. So I am uh, maybe a third of the way through Nature's Best Hope. And uh, nice. it was at your recommendation, actually, that I picked it up. Oh, yeah, cool. So I've been enjoying it. And it really is eye-opening. You know, especially the introduction puts together so many pieces like right there in one place. Mm -hmm. Okay, so do you have any other upcoming projects or interesting things that you want to point out that you'd like to highlight to listeners? Well, you know, I'm I've been working with some folks, and hopefully there'll be a documentary coming out this time next year about coexistence. It's something that I've really been getting into is coexistence with wildlife, something that's been very, very interesting to me. If that's interesting to you, um, I would recommend checking out Chris Wilmers from Santa Cruz University. He talks about mountain lions. He's very, like, I've listened to a lot of people talk about mountain lions. He's one of my favorite people to listen to. If you want to learn about predators in California, Chris Wilmers. And then I think it's Wood River and they in Idaho, and it's a group called Wood River. Pretty sure it's Wood River. And they deal with, like, wolf coexistence. And so those are both really interesting. And then there's a guy named Chris Shell was up in Seattle, Dr. Chris Shell talks about urban wildlife. I think that's really interesting. So these are some other things that people might want to explore is like wildlife coexistence. And I'm, you know, I'm going to be in this documentary talking about it in a year. Um, I'll tell you more about that before it comes out. And then, you know, I work for, I work for the state, California state parks and this year's, but I'm not representing them right now, but this year is the centennial anniversary. And so the last Saturday of every month, I'll be interviewing someone and, in July, it's going to be Reed Noss, which is incredible to me. He's like the father of deep ecology. He's one of the fathers of conservation biology. He wrote the book, you know, about, about the Redwoods. And so I'm looking forward to having him on. And then Jerry Rhodes, who wrote the book about Humboldt Redwood State Park. And, and then uh, Jose Gonzalez from Latino Outdoors, who's also been instrumental in saving some wilderness areas in California. So there's really cool speaker series that I'm doing. And so people can go to Humboldt Redwood State Park's Facebook page. And I also put a lot of lives there. And then on my my own personal Facebook page, at Griff Wild, I put a lot of live videos there. And on my Instagram, at The Nature Nut. And I'm always doing stuff around wildlife conservation and ecological restoration. And DEI, diversity, inclusion, equity stuff too, is also something really important to me. That's great. Uh, so it definitely sounds like you have a busy schedule ahead. And the other thing I was going to mention for those who are on my mail list, I always follow up with my previous guests and I ask them about like upcoming projects. So uh, in the future, Griff, I'm going to reach out regardless and, and say, hey, what's going on? So I can share it with people who got to hear oh, you cool. today. So uh, that will awesome. probably be a good chance then to catch up on, on that documentary and other cool things that you're up to. Yeah. Thank you. Biodiversity loss is happening. It's real. And there are a bunch of things we can do to help and I want you to not just do the things, but also come out of your comfort zones and be contagious and try to infect other people with your conservation bug. We need all hands on deck right now. It's never been so important. It keeps getting more and more urgent. And, and I would like to, it to not be so urgent. And I feel like it can take a generation of us educating each other and, and, and just getting really active with this so that we can slow this you know, extinction crisis 
and, and address some of our other issues too, but it's going to take us doing something and informing ourselves and becoming empathetic and taking compassionate action. And that's what it means to be a solutionary, to inform yourself, to be empathetic, to take compassionate action. That's what a solutionary is. And we need solutionaries. So please dedicate some time, commit to this. Griff, that's inspiring. And I don't think there's anything else I can add to it. So thank you so much for spending so much time today. And I look forward to staying in touch in the future. I hope you had a good time. Awesome. Thank you. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.